Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed to be in dialogue with Seema Segal. She is the author of The Second World War and Northeast India, Shadows of Yesteryear, published in New York by Routledge 2022. Dr. Seema Segal is Associate Professor at the Northeast Regional Institute of Education in Magayala, India. Seema, it is my blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. To begin, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, uh, I was born in Malaysia, but at the age of 10, my mom uh, brought me back to India. And uh, since then, because she felt I was a bit too alienated for, from Indian culture, so so after I came back to India at the age of 10, so I finished my schooling, my college, higher education, and everything out here. And uh, much later, I joined NERI NCRT, which is the apex body of school education in the country. Thank you for sharing. How did you become inspired by the study of Indian history and military history? How did you become interested in the history of World War II? Actually, partly it was uh, personal because uh, like I have explained in the preface of my book that uh, when I was uh, very small, I was uh, sent to live with my uncle in Dimapur, Dimapur, which is currently in the state of Nagaland in India. And uh, there we had uh, made very close friendship with the Punjabi family. And uh, we would uh, share or rather have a great, the lunch session every Sunday. And what really uh, confused me rather was that uh, they would sometimes prepare elaborate Burmese cuisine and they would also speak in fluent Burmese. So as a schoolgirl, and um, I, what I knew from my geography textbooks was that Punjabis are inhabitants of Northern India and Burma are separate countries so far away. So uh, this confusion continued until one day, one of the elders, in a moment of reflection, um, they told us that uh, initially they were inhabitants of Burma, having a very comfortable existence, and suddenly they lost it all when the Japanese invaded Burma. So uh, somehow I never forgot this. And then later I was uh, sent to a boarding school in Shillong, Shillong, which is uh, in Meghalaya. And uh, during the winter holidays, I would spend time with my grandmother and uh, she had directly witnessed the war. So as little children, she would uh, love to tell the stories of her yesteryears. And of course, her most favorite story was the Second World War. And uh, these stories were very intriguing. But uh, as I've given in my book, what shocked me the most one day when she said that she saw a Japanese paratrooper landing near the house. And I was like so excited about it that 
the next day, I actually went to the backyard to search for any clues. And I guess maybe I had been reading too much of Enid Blyton. So years later, of course, when I researched the topic, I realized that the story was uh, so ridiculously untrue. But what was true, nevertheless, what my grandmother told me was that there was so much of rumors were floating around that people were inclined you know, to believe anything. And uh, they went through a sort of a psychological trauma. So even though Shillong was least affected by the war, so this is what they were sort of hallucinating and imagining the impossible. This is what was going on. Thereafter, like my grandmother passed away and in school and even college, higher education, uh, we did learn, obviously, the Second World War. But we, we looked at it mainly from the perspective of, you know, the Allied versus Axis powers. So more about Hitler. But uh, I never knew what happened at home. We were never taught what happened at home. So until much later, when I joined the university, then uh, my professor there, Professor J.B. Bhattacharji, he suggested that I look into it. Of course, after that, he was appointed as vice chancellor of Assam University. He had to leave. But I continued this with the other professor, Professor Manorama Sharma. And then I suddenly realized there is so much that we do not know. So that is the start to it, actually. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, what did you learn about yourself during the writing, revising, and editing process that went into this book? Yeah, that's a very good question. A lot, actually. Uh, firstly, the rigor in you know academic excellence when you're writing a nonfiction book from the smallest uh, but very important details, such as your end notes, your referencing, your sentence construction, and of course, corroborating sources, um, which good publishers are very careful about, and it should be. And of course, I didn't have a problem with this because my guide, my supervisor rather, when I did my PhD, uh, she was very meticulous about this. So I had been trained well. But then I think the second part, what I learned is that uh, if you are disoriented in life, if you don't know what is your goal, you don't know what is it you want in life, what, what is it you need to do in life, then your writing also becomes as disoriented. So that's why the first two drafts which I wrote was uh, something that I was very ashamed of, actually. And then suddenly I started discovering myself. And the moment I did that, the writing became so easy. Life became so easy. So that was the second important learning aspect. And in other words, I found myself while I was writing the book. And thirdly, and lastly, uh, it was also a very cathartic experience for me, like all the pent-up emotions and feelings I had. So later when I went into the stories of these characters of the Second World War, I was able to relate to them. I could understand it. You know, I was able to relate and I was able to subdue all these other feelings I had. So it was really a very cathartic moment. Thank you for sharing. What is your book's contribution to the history of World War II? Yeah, um, the prime contribution of my book to the history of the Second World War is that it fills in the gaps of the untold stories of this great conflict, which uh, surprisingly, even after eight decades following the war, uh, is not known to the world at large. Uh, it, it is also surprising because, see, when we talk about... Uh, the Second World War, we do have a voluminous array of publications at hand. 
which uh, broadly deals with either the military aspect or the human aspect, although, of course, both are deeply interlinked. And, uh, you know, when we talk about the human aspect, then no doubt the experiences vary, you know, depending your, upon your nationality, where you were at that time. But uh, what, whatever that is, then collectively, you know, and the human impact, the social, economic, political impact, then there were ne nevertheless certain common strands, such as seafood, food, um, destitution, starvation, the refugee movement, which irrespective of where you were, then collectively uh, it, it was the same. So uh, then I realized that uh, there is so much, you know, that needs to be filled in, particularly when we talk about this corner of the world. In fact, my book brings out the dramatic turn of events caused by the war in what was then an unknown corner of the world and an isolated peripheral corner of India. The fact that the war could touch this remote area and dramatically overall people's life so shows in the first place the magnitude of the global conflict. And also, like um, I've shown in my book, which is unknown till now, the contribution of Northeast India uh, to the Second World War. So because when we talk about the Second World War, uh, we have so much books on the military history, the Kohima Imphal battlefields, but nothing is known about how this isolated corner of, you know, of British India suddenly after 1942 assumed supreme importance because of its uh, strategic significance and how it completely changed people's lives in ways that was unprecedented. So in this sense, it fills in the gaps of the history of the Second World War. So, you know, it's something that is not known till date. And my book is the first of this kind which deals with the socio-economic and political aspect of the war. For the benefit of listeners who may lack background, can you describe the history, demography, and geography of Assam province? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, see, this question is very necessary because without knowing what was the so-called province of Assam, which during the war assumes supreme strategic importance, uh, then it's very difficult to gauge the full impact of the war. Uh, moreover, within the history of India during colonial rule, this region, which is today known as Northeast India, uh, was during that time known for its distinctiveness, exclusivity, and overall backwardness vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the country. It was an isolated and neglected periphery of India, and uh, one can then imagine what would be the impact of a global war. That is why in Chapter 1, I have engaged the readers to a brief history of Assam leading to the outbreak of the war. So like it's, uh, if you look at the political map of India today, we have to look at the Eastern corner of what is today known as Northeast India, which has eight states and Assam included. But during colonial rule, all these states, with the exception of Manipur and Tripura, which were princely states and Sikkim, was included with, within the so-called province of Assam. So it was huge and it also, in a way, it represented a microcosm of India. Like in the plains, we have the predominantly Hindu-Aryan communities known as the Assamese, alongside the Assamese Muslims, then Bengalis, 
but also interspersed with local tribes. You have Hindus, uh, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, and so on. So, in fact, out of the 635 tribal groups in the country, this region has over 200 tribes. So it's a very complex representation. And along with that, the region is also located in a very strategic position. About 98% um, of the boundary of these states has international borders. And with Myanmar alone, Myanmar alone, it has a 1,643-kilometer border. So now, during colonial rule, as I said earlier, this entire region was known as the province of Assam. Uh, and um, it was, but with the exception of Assam as we know today, the rest of the region, that the hill area, were inhabited by hill tribes who were excluded from the rest of the country because of exclusionary laws such as inner line regulation, the frontier track regulation, and after 1935, these areas were totally segregated, even from the plains area of Assam. So nobody was allowed to go there except British officials who, who supervised. In fact, um, there were some parts of the hill areas where they had never been exposed to the civilized world. Uh, they were absolutely cut off. So in striking a contrast, the Assam plains, uh, uh, which is the state of Assam today, more than the three-fourths of the entire population of the region resided there. And um, it was also home to the extensive tea plantations and uh, thriving tea plant plantations and also oil refinery in Upper Assam, which by 1935 accounted for nearly 50% of the total tea exports in the country. Now, this may seem that uh, this was beneficial to the region, but it was not because it was an enclaving economy, which uh, deprives the region of the profits accruing from both tea and uh, oil because um, the tea industry was predominantly under European planters. And uh, in fact, uh, the Indian ownership was only 33% with barely 15% of the total acreage. And that, and th that was also non-indigenous. The Assamese had only 22 estates, that's as per 1939, and these are very small proprietary concern. And uh, the development initiatives in the region also were very, very limited. Uh, all existing roads, railways, infrastructure, it was designed to, designed to sustain the tea industry and it, large parts of the province was overlooked. It did not help the local people. And then the provincial budget was always uh, uh, facing a problem because lack of any uh, elastic revenues that would sustain the region. So the farmers in agriculture, that is, uh, they were on the one hand subjected to heavy taxation, but they were not getting any development initiatives. And so uh, then, then again, there was the natural hazards from the Brahmaputra River. So most of them were actually living in a self-subsistence state. And also, there were no industries in the region. So Assam was dependent on alternate provinces for even the most, most basic items, sugar, uh, you know, oil, cooking oil, salt, and so on. So uh, added to this, uh, there was the issue that uh, the borders in the eastern borders, that is Burma, Myanmar, was totally uncharted and uh, 
undefended and uh, there was no question of you know the 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 center absolutely did not take heed to the strategic significance of this region so this gives us a brief outline of the region and in fact uh, as i've given in my book unemployment was uh, such a major issue uh, already that the youths were facing a severe problem here so and it was a capital capital deficit province because whatever profits were earned here was siphoned from the region so it was that's why in fact they used to call it cinderella of the provinces so it it was one of the most backward regions of the country just prior to the war that was the situation here one individual you discuss in the book is braujanath sarma can you tell us about his importance braujanath sharma yes yeah actually he is um, uh, associated more with the quit india movement rajanath sharma and uh, interestingly actually he was initially uh, you know uh, he was more of a playwright you know a playwright uh, uh, into theater and he was also credited for uh, initiating the first uh, mobile theater in assam and interestingly even in this first world war he had uh, joined the british indian forces and um, in the late 30s he entered politics but suddenly during the war in fact he organized the most provocative uh, movements against the british in what was termed by the by the sp in uh, assam as one of the most dangerous agitators but then uh, again what is really surprising is immediately after the good india movement immediately after the war immediately after independence he entered a brief stint in politics but then after that he went back to theater so somehow i could not understand the the link between you know what he was what he did during the quit india movement and then what he eventually turned to another individual discussed in the book is gopinath bardoloi can you tell yeah. us about him yeah gopinath bardoloi uh, is more popularly known as uh, the first chief minister of independent assam you know that is after independence uh, um, he's also known um, as having saved assam from inclusion into east pakistan and that is why he is highly respected highly revered in this in this province and in fact you know when we talk about gopinath bodola then uh, then another name sir mohammad sadullah also enters here because what happened during the war was a case of you know the high political drama between these two individuals who represented different parties who had absolutely different ideologies different way of ways of life but who were two the two most uh, i think powerful individuals in assam during the during the second world one gopinath bodole was from the congress party the largest national part, nationalist party in india and uh, sir mohammad sadullah he was not initially from the muslim league in fact he never wanted to join but he was political circumstances made him join the uh, muslim league and uh, eventually what happened is that while the former was totally mis misrepres- uh, misunderstood and misrepresented in assam then gopinath bodole continued to be a towering figure but then he died also very early that is just in 1950 what new perspectives 
are gleaned in this book regarding the Quit India movement? Okay. Um, my book looks into the Quit India movement from an entirely new perspective. But firstly, what was the Quit India movement? And what is the existing you know, narrative on it? So it was last launched by the Indian National Congress, the largest political party in the in the country, on 8th August 1942, with a clear message to the British to quit India, to leave India. Uh, now, this may sound uh, a bit uh, strange because this was the time when this was the height of the war. This was also the time when Japan had already overrun uh, Southeast Asia. But then, since the outbreak of the war, Actually, the Indian National Congress had already had a long string of negotiations. And they were very clear. They were very clear in this stand that they cannot associate themselves in a war said to be for democratic freedom when that very freedom is denied to her. And uh, they, they were very also very clear that they would cooperate with the in the war, but provided that uh uh provided that you know a solid uh, uh confirmation is given on the question of India's independence. Now, after that, of course, um, there was the issue of the United States uh, urging upon Winston Churchill to see, to augur for Assam's, uh, sorry, India's independence. There was again China. So then again, you have the story of the Sir Stafford Cripps coming to India, known as the Cripps mission. So basically, this was a this was an attempt by the Churchill government to assuage international opinion, of course, because what the Crips mission did was it accepted the right to self-determination, but then there, there, there was a problem there because there it was stated that other provinces have the right not to join the Indian Union and to form separate Indian states. If that would have happened, that, that would have been a total balkanization of India. Maybe there would have been no India left. So this was the background on which the Quit India movement was launched on the 8th. And on the 9th August, all the Congress leaders, national and leaders, were immediately present. Now, what is my take here? Now, the thing is that in modern Indian history, the Quit India movement is seen as the grand finale of our freedom struggle against the British. In fact, uh, it is celebrated each year till date as an official function to pay tribute to the freedom fighters and martyrs. And also we have, you know, full of national integration speeches. Uh, the reason given is that this movement played a crucial role in India's struggle for independence. There is no doubt about this. And one cannot deny the patriotic fervor which gripped the people of the country at that time. But what my book attempts to do is a corrective to the historiographical errors. Firstly, this event in, in existing history books in India is seen in a disparate way, meaning the Second World War and what was happening in Southeast Asia, Burma, and the refugee movement acquires just a footnote or maybe a few lines within the grand narrative of the freedom struggle, as a consequence of which many issues are either unknown or misinterpreted. So the first corrective here that my book uh, uh, rectifies is that the Quit India movement should be seen in context of a global war. In other words, the war should be at the center stage of our analysis. And this gives a more realistic picture about what happened, how it happened. Otherwise, how is it that in the early months of 1942, 
when the people in India, including Congress leaders, both national and provincial, who were really worried and scared of an impending Japanese invasion, suddenly threw all caution and engaged in a volatile mass upheaval. So this is the first important question we need to ask ourselves. And we also need to look at the intervening months after the Pearl Harbor incident. We cannot explain Quit India movement by simply looking at the events from August alone. The second important question that we need to ask ourselves is, what was the impact of the Quit India movement? That is, after the movement was subdued. So, so there's very little on this, very little works on this. So my book does not go into the details of the high political drama happening in Delhi during this time, because we already have enough literature on it. And uh, I don't even go so much into the nature of the movement. I've just highlighted it. But my focus is in the two main queries I've just uh, raised. So without being overtly critical about past narratives, which I did not do, because the way the chapter of my book unfolds, it is clearly evident. For instance, the Quit India movement is in chapter five, but to understand the movement in its entirety, one has to begin from chapter four, the title of which is From Burma to India. So initially when Japan started to advance in Southeast Asia, and when Singapore, Malaysia, and Burma fell to Japanese occupation, there was a deep fear amongst the people of what would happen to them. In fact, as I've given in my book, even Congress leaders were consistently writing to the party high command Delhi in Delhi for advice on what should they do if the Japanese would enter Assam. Then you have the refugee movement of people from Burma uh, escaping to India, which went via Manipur after a horrendous journey, many of whom did not survive the ordeal. So as they were stationed in the Northeast waiting for the necessary provisions for going home, they did. They started talking about it, and the issue of racism loomed large. You see, during the refugee, during the exodus from Burma, there were separate roads for the whites and separate roads for the brown people. Uh, expenses for the Indian refugees was charged to the provincial budget, which was all, already uh, on the brink of collapse. Whereas for Europeans, it was a central head. And as to, and as the story of this racism and brutal ordeal circulated around, then gradually this fear transformed into anger amongst the Indian people. But then at the same time, there were also stories circulating about the so-called bravery of the Japanese soldiers and the fact that the white rulers were humbled by an Asiatic power, breaking the myth of the invincibility of the British. At the same time, there was the nervousness of British administrators, where there were clear signs that they were contemplating to withdraw from Eastern India. And that followed another of a series of devastating policies, such as the denial policy, or what is called the scorched earth policy, uh, the, the destruction of so much of rice in Eastern Bengal, taking over of those country boats, lifeline of the people. So then all this changed people's views about the war and where they stood. And especially amongst the youth, there was a growing restlessness. And that triggered what became one of the most volatile aspects of the movement. Because what they did attack was targets of uh, the very infrastructure that the 
Allied forces were trying to build up for the war against uh, Japan. But then, then the question is, what was the aftermath? So this was actually, according to me, seen. It's a it was a mistake in many ways because firstly, Congress leaders were arrested and they were to be released only end of 1944 or 45. So they never actually witnessed the most brutal aspect of the war beginning from 1942. They were never able to witness the the case of a help in provisions of like inflation, food and other basic necessities. And secondly, also after the in order to suppress the movement, the British started using a system called collective fine, fines. So whole villages, uh, regardless of whether the people were involved or not, were forced to contribute fines. Or they were asked to put in labor to repair what had been destroyed during the movement. So these are the questions uh, and many questions. So which actually question, which actually uh, should be looked into while looking at the Putin debate which unfortunately our narratives here do not deal with it as much as it should be done. What was the Grow More Food campaign? Can you explain it to us? Hmm. Actually, the Grow More Food campaign introduced in 1943 was a very important initiative of the British government in India. And uh, basically the campaign involved basically, you know, an intensive and ex extensive agricultural drive by distributing land for cultivation, distributing of seeds at low prices, grant of loans, more extensive use of irrigation, multiple cropping, and so on. And also a transition from non-edible to food crops. But it was a measure that 1943, it came uh, far too late because by the time the world foods would supply pollen to complete cures. And in the colonies, the situation was heading for a disastrous famine situation. Uh, in fact, securing a regular food supply had become a central preoccupation for governments across the world because if the food supply failed, then it would impact not only on the army, but also the war industries and civilian morale. Uh, now, if the USA, in, the, in America, uh, no one faced a food crisis. In Britain, no one faced a food crisis. But it is surprising that... Um, because because an excellent rationing system, price control system had already been introduced. But um, in the colonies, it is surprising that uh, since the beginning of the war, there was no planned effort to avert a major crisis in food supply. The main uh, attention of the government since the beginning of the war was firstly mobilizing resources for the war effort, uh, then after 1941, the attention was diverted towards the so-called Japanese problem. And in spite of the fact that uh, warnings had already been assured, uh, assured that uh, something must be done, otherwise uh, they could face a huge famine-like uh, situation here. So, um, and what was also difficult, what was also problematic because Eastern India and South India was dependent on rice from Burma. So once uh, Burma was taken off, so complete this very important source of rice imports was also gone. And uh, although largely agrarian country, but in the past, India had survived by mainly uh, banking, upon, in, banking upon imports. So now... It was in this backdrop that the Grow More Food campaign was initiated. 
and uh, so but then also the another purpose was that uh, they could maintain a regular supply to the defense forces and secondly the idea was that they could uh, ensure supplies from surplus provinces to deficit provinces which was which was of course a very sound and uh, but th this is not what happened it was a, it was a sort of a failure of course there was extension of land but the objective the objective intended that it would radically overall the agrarian scenario and help to prevent food shortages miserably missed its mark for a number of reasons and i have dealt with this in detail in my book uh, by giving the example of uh, by giving the example of uh, assam so much of the benefits which uh, agriculturists were supposed to receive it did not really uh, reach them like agricultural lo loans they did not receive and then uh, distribution of seeds at a lesser uh, at at a concessional rate that they did not receive and there was rampant corruption in the agricultural and supply department officers were floating government uh, rule and then also there was a con problem of transport uh, uh, transportation because much of the uh, transportation including even bullock carts country boats these had been requisitioned for the needs of the army so there were situations where cultivators uh, had to dispose of their crops at uh, literally throwaway prices so since they lost all incentives actually they they started leaving the agriculture and moving towards military sites where actually a large um, they were getting much higher wages for work so the situation became so dire that uh, in 1944 in fact the the government officials they passed the order that any land left fallow shall be assessed to government tax at the rate of 10 times the usual tax paid as revenue to the government or tribute to the landlord so they also made it clear that they would now allot these lands to those who are willing to cultivate this was seen in all of the province and also in other parts of the country this uh, same problem was uh, going on where landlords were not finding cultivators to cultivate because they were all rushing to the military sites so when they're not able to sell their crops when they're not getting the incentives so obviously they would uh, they would see which is the best opportunity for them so this was basically and one more thing i'd like to say uh, this bromo food campaign was not unique to india it was all all over the world like in in southeast asia the japanese introduced it so it was some some areas it was a success some areas it was a disaster in britain it was introduced but it was known as dig for victory and there of course uh, it was a great success because you had a whole lot of people who were willing to participate so it's a difference between a colonial and uh, colonizing power so that i guess that was the basic difference here it was abdul matin chadwari why is he consequential yeah no abdul matin chaudhry is uh, very very consequential because uh, he was actually uh, born in selet uh, which is currently in bangladesh but that time selet uh, was a part of assam and uh, he was actually initially with uh, jinnah and engaged in the national politics but um, after 1937 
when the Muslim, All India Muslim League fared very badly. And, and uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah uh, decided to remove moderate elements and introduce those who were very loyal to him. Then Abdul Matin Chaudhary was sent to Assam. And uh, he, he was the one person who actually revived the fortunes of the revived the fortunes of the league. And because the league hardly had any base uh, prior to prior to the war. In fact, the in only 1938, a branch was opened in in the Brahmaputra Valley of Assam. Uh, the other, that is Surma Valley, it was in 1928. And uh, in the Brahmaputra Valley, there were only four members. So it was Abdul Matin Chaudhary who changed the fortunes of the Muslim League. It was Abdul Matin Chaudhary who got Sadullah to join the League's party. And it was he who spearheaded the movement of Assam for East Pakistan. So in Muslim politics, he is a very, very uh, consequential figure, definitely. Can you tell us about Sir Syed Muhammad Saadullah? Why is he significant? Yeah, uh, Sir Muhammad Saadullah is very, very uh, significant. Uh, in fact, um, I had earlier mentioned about him. And in fact, uh, the most uh, misunderstood figure, in I think, in Assam, and uh, whose uh, contributions have been uh, over much much overlooked. So actually, uh, he had a very distinguished career, initially as a lawyer, and he was also a member of the Assam Legislative Council in 1912 and 1923. And he had a very deep insight on fiscal matters. And although he was pro-British, but he never hesitated to uh, state the issues and the concerns of Assam. Uh, in fact, it was Sadullah who broached the topic that the royalties from Assam oil and the revenues from tea should be forthcoming to the province because it was not. And uh, during the war, uh, he was actually, he was the one who initiated the Assam Regiment. It was because of his constant appeals that the Assam Regiment was formed. But uh, basically, he was alone in the political realm. And so he was, uh, by circumstances, pulled to the league's fold. And uh, so that created a lot of uh, misunderstandings within the people. And uh, he was a central figure, actually, during the Second World War. Bordoloi was Gopinath Bordoloi, which uh, you asked earlier. He was also there. But then Gopinath Bordoloi was, was in the Congress and they were incarcerated, right. I mean, from 1942 to 40, sorry, 19, yes, 1942 to 44, end of 44, he was not there. So Sadula was the person who was at the hem of affairs. And it was actually, it was a difficult situation to be in, to be the leader of a party in a, in a region at the time of war was indeed a very difficult situation for him. In what and ways? Also I'll, uh, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll just add here also. And also because since he was in the league's fold, so he had to adhere to their policies, which, you know, the, such as the formation of East Pakistan, giving land to the Bengali immigrants who were pouring to Assam. And that did not, uh, uh, that obviously was not favored by the indigenous people of Assam. So that would put him in a lot of uh, misunderstandings with local people. In what ways does your research recontextualize the Bengal famine? Yeah, uh, see, the Bengal famine of uh, 19, 
43, where, you know, but 3 million people died for lack of food, was, of course, one of the most uh, horrific impact of the war in India. Uh, now, in my book, I did not go into the causes of the Bengal famine because we already have uh, elaborate materials on it. Uh, so instead, my focus was to enter a less explored area, that is, the spillover effects of the Bengal famine in Assam. You know, So what was the impact of the famine in the province of Assam? That is what I have uh, gone into. So uh, I started with the harrowing details, the eyewitness accounts of people seeing the famine victims pouring into the province, like uh, eyewitness accounts of falling sites of the famine victims in Assam who looked like a body of skeletons simply covered with skin, moving on the road like so many dead bodies. Now, the, su the surprising fact here was that um, the local people kept the distance from these victims. There was no humanitarian aid. There were no uh, large-scale uh, help to feed these famine victims once they entered Assam. Unlike the refugee movement in 1942, uh, in fact, the governor himself viewed them as, a, as an embarrassment and as a potential danger to the war effort. So, but then what happened actually and what I've tried to focus in my book is that how these helpless victims who, due to lack of relief, uh, were thronging to the province of Assam, uh, how this issue actually became an issue for politicization. That is, it was politicized, a, a natural uh, human calamity was politicized to alarming degrees. So first is, I, I saw how the Nazimuddin government in Bengal, you know, urged upon the central government to remove all restrictions that was being imposed by the Assam government or immigrants pouring into the region. So, uh, and then uh, the Nazimuddin, that is the rule of, uh, you know, the, the Bengal province, he even uh, paid a visit to Sadula, uh, as, asking the premier to send food stocks to Bengal on the audacious threat of uh, sanctions because Assam was dependent on Bengal for all for all necessary items. So if Assam would have put restrictions on the immigrants coming to Assam, if Assam would not have allowed rice exports to the neighboring uh, province, then that would have meant that they would not receive the goods all the other essential items in Assam. And also like what is not spoken about is that, uh, yes, we had the Bengal famine, but we also had another famine in Baniachong, which is which was in Silet district. And in fact, uh, in one of the village, uh, largest village in the world, as given by the census of 1950, village of 40,000, at least 12,000 died of famine there. And, and numbers, of course, increased much more. So ultimately what happened is in the, the Bengal, the, the, the people who started pouring into Bengal, it was politicized to such an extent that it was eventually the, I mean, they, they were, the immigration issue became a focus for materialization of the East Pakistan scheme. But what happened to these victims, there was actually the, the able-bodied people were able to find work 
and of course land land was given to them but all the rest they they were in a very dire strait so that is what i have looked into in fact uh, in my book that's why you know that chapter where i talk about the bengal famine and its impact in assam i the title of the chapter is politics of famine can you tell us about the role and evolution of the provincial muslim league in the events that you describe and chronicle in this study um yes actually uh, the provincial muslim league party in assam was uh, completely um, its prominence came during the second world war and uh, to understand that like um, uh, see before that the league had the provincial like muslim league had a very late entry in assam um 1938 was the party floated in the brahmaputra valley 1927 in sunma valley and just about four four members were there and uh, it was actually we have to go back to the provincial assembly elections of 1937 where the congress had a spectacular victory uh, they had a clear majority in uh, they won the seats in five out of 11 provinces and in the other three they had a clear majority but uh, jinnah's all india muslim league fared terribly and yes jinnah wanted to form coalitions with with the congress but uh, the congress made a tactical error by denying by denying that and thereafter he started uh, jinnah uh, changed over to communal politics and he also began to oust moderate uh, leaders from the league with you know with those of die hard leaders who were absolute loyal to jinnah's cause and for assam like you know the name that we mentioned earlier uh, was uh, abdul matin choudhry so then after that during the war the league really started going growing in strength in assam so much so that um, actually the east pakistan the materialization of the east pakistan scheme including assam nearly became a possibility also can you tell us about the assam regiment what happened to it during the second world war can you describe its composition and the role that it played in world war 2 yeah uh, the assam regiment which is an infantry regiment of the indian army uh, was one of the most i think enduring and positive impact of the second world war in northeast india uh, strangely however most people in um, india and even in the northeast uh, they do not know the history of its wartime creation or the person who relentlessly pursued for the formation of the regiment and the significant role of the first recruits compri- comprising the first battalion towards the allied war effort it is also unfortunate that um, we do not know the stories of these boys uh, they are completely unheard of and unknown so the significance of the assam regiment is that actually till the war assam did not have a regular infantry unit of its own unlike other provinces with decades of regimental history and uh, in the past yes there was one assam light infantry but it bore, bore the name of assam because it was stationed in assam but its recruits were drawn from elsewhere assam also had the assam rifles which was a but that was a paramilitary force it was not meant for defense and it was raised in the mid 19th century purely to protect the tea gardens from neighboring tribes and to quell internal dis- disturbances 
Secondly, we need to look at uh, British defense priorities in India, which throughout colonial rule was geared towards the Northwest frontier from a possible you know, Russian invasion of minor skirmishes from the Afghans. And uh, this Russian threat also extended to Central Asia, where the great game was played over the precious oil wells of uh, Iraq and Iran. So bulk of the Indian army was con concentrated in the uh, Northwest. And uh, even the British, they were very well acquainted with this region, that is the Northwestern frontier. Uh, but uh, the strategic considerations of the Northeast was not taken care of. There was well, the only force guarding the Northeast at that time of the war was uh, Assam rifles. So the, the actually the outbreak of war ch changed the dynamics of firstly the social composition of the Indian army and there was um, a, a two, eventually 2.5 million uh, boys actually from India, they voluntarily joined the army. So even within Assam, there was a huge clamoring for, for uh, especially from those who were, who were pro-British to for raising a regular unit of the Indian army in, uh, in Assam. So uh, that time, Sadullah was the one who completely and uh, persistently appeared to the center for raising, a, raising their own battalion. But uh, ironically, this was initially uh, not heeded to uh, initially. Uh, that's because modernization of the Indian Army has started very late. And India was also lacking in armament industry, even the basic industries which support the manufacture of arms and ammunition. So, and um, most of the attention was given to the Northwest. So the Northwestern frontier. So eventually it was agreed to, but with a caveat that it was decided that initially the funds would have to be borne by the province, initially, initial stage. And secondly, that it would be a temporary force. Uh, so for the first time, a history of the Indian army was raised in Assam. That was in 1941 in June. And uh, it was my privilege that I... Some years ago, I met the first recruits of the, uh, of the I mean the first recruits of the first battalion of the Assam Regiment, who not only participated in the war in, in in Kohima and uh, but also who later participated in the recapture of Burma, and what the contribution that the Assam Regiment made made to the Allied war was so phenomenal that. Uh, after the war, it was they not only received so many military awards, but it was decided that this would be a permanent force. And also one thing that Assam Regiment means that the recruitment would be indigenous, that all the in, that this would give an opportunity for the indigenous people. And also it means that this expenses would be borne by the center. Who was Captain Mohan Singh? Why was he consequential? Um, actually, Captain Mohan Singh uh, represented the INA Indian National Army of you know, uh, which was we are popularly uh, equate, equated with Vash Chandra Bose. But uh, so I have not my book deals in a very limited way with the INA, but he is important because uh, he was the he, he was actually in the British Indian Army. So after the fall of uh, Singapore, 
and Malaysia. He was uh, one of those. Uh, he was one of those many soldiers who was actually uh, selected by the Japanese, given the idea of forming a separate, uh, you know, a, a separate army unit to wrest India back from Britain. So he was one of the first, actually, because the Indian National Army was formed. Actually, it was Captain Mohan Singh. And later on, it was taken by taken over by Subhas Chandra Bose. But then uh, there was a lot of problems in the initial stage. And in fact, uh, that is before Subhas Chandra Bose came to the picture. And in fact, the army raised by Captain Mohan Singh was nearly disbanded because of the inability to get along with the Japanese. It was very, very... Can you tell us about Angami Zapu Fizu? Why is he noteworthy? Uh, actually, he's uh, more not noteworthy for the post-war, post-independence period, actually. Uh, so he does not actually figure much in a book except the last chapter, you know, the last chapter where I have uh, written that uh, after the war, there was so much of these arms, ammunition, these guns scattered around. So uh, these were also taken by Fizo and his men. And uh, he was he did not uh, participate with the British during the war. And after the war, it was he who spearheaded the insurgency movement in Nagaland that is demanding separation from India. So actually, he is not you know uh, linked to that extent with my book. Can you tell us about Lakshmi Swami Naitan Segal? Yeah, very interesting. Um, personality. She uh, she was actually a doctor by profession and uh, before the outbreak of the war she was already in Singapore because Singapore did have a lot of Indian uh, residents. So her life completely changed when uh, she actually met saw Subhas Chandra Bose in 1943 when he was trying to uh, gather uh, in the, gather the Indian people, the Indian residents in Southeast Asia to the cause of the INA. So she was so thrilled and, and captivated by the charisma of Subhas Chandra Bose, and, uh, which she has clearly mentioned herself. And uh, she joined the INA. She not only joined the INA, but uh, she was in the women's regiment, the Rani of Jansi regiment. She was the first woman to actually join the uh, Indian National Army. And there also she... Uh, she actually later on after after the war she got married to Prem Kumar Sehgal, one of the army officers, and uh, even and much later after after independence she continued in her profession as as a medical practitioner, but continued to uh, write a lot of articles. In fact, I went through article once in the souvenir which of Manipur that uh, was celebrated to to observe the. You know the the golden souvenir celebrations of INA, and so she gives a very wonderful uh, presentation that describes her journey. Can you describe the Battle of Jessami? What were its ramifications? Yeah, um, the Battle of Jessami, we had it's and Karosam, You know, uh, it uh, it ended in a total rout for the soldiers of the Assam Regiment. I mean, this is actually where the contribution of the Assam Regiment comes. So it ended in a total rout. Um, but in British military history, it is a it was a very significant battle 
and it's not looked as a defeat because it was due, due to the courageous and relentless nature of how these boys and the officers attempted to resist the Japanese, many of whom lost their lives, but in the process were able to delay the advance of the Japanese towards Kohima because at that time reinforcements had not entered. So it, if the Assam regiment had not fought in the back, fought and and diverted the attention of the Japanese and delayed the attention for five for five days, then it would have been a disaster in Kohima and uh, in, in the battle in Kohima. So now both this Jesami and um, Harusam, it's these are actually villages in the borders of Manipur and uh, Kohima. So. They was the Sam regiment and the officers. They were sent there actually for reconnaissance activities, because at that time the Japanese army had already entered uh, Manipur. So, were they going to now? When were they going to enter Kohima? There was no news about that. So they were sent actually to um to to gather intelligence, but then it so happened that. Uh, Ultimately, they had to meet the Japanese. So I've given it in detail in my book, you know, the battles where, uh, in fact, this war veteran who I uh, met, he, in his war memoir, which he presented to me, he has given absolutely in detail about what happened there in the battlefield. And um, and also in Peter Stein's book, he gives that in detail. So they lost the battle, many of them, many of the, Assam regiment boys died. Many of the British officers there died, but at least, but they were able to stall the Japanese advance till reinforcements came in uh, Kohima. In fact, if they they had not done that, if they had not fought relentlessly, then it would have been a very uh, difficult situation for the war in Kohima. In fact, it's uh, it's uh, it's almost like uh, when when Mar was narrating the story. It was almost like, you know, watching a movie, uh, the way he was narrating the story. And uh, very, it was very, very, indeed, very touching. And also when you see the difficulties that these men went, so many of whom never survived it. What is your book's contribution to British military history? Yeah, I, th- I think I can just put it this way, that, see, um, um, when we talk about British military history in terms of Northeast India, then the entire focus is on the Kohima Imphal battles. And of course, we have so much of publications on it um, since the beginning, since the end of the war, written by you know British officers or even officials alike, and, and which continues to pour in. But my point is that uh, battles are won, not just by what happens in the battlefield, but by all that effort taken for the logistical preparation. And here was a region which uh, absolutely had nothing, absolutely had one of the most backward regions in the country. But then right right from 1942, you you see the efforts put by by the uh, officers from the Indian Civil Service in in each of the district of Assam. You see the efforts put by the people of the Northeast. Many of them where they joined and many of them were involved in, you know, behind enemy lines operations. Many of them were involved in the construction sites. 
and uh, also the contribution of the people in food, food and kind, so many things. So I think for military history, you cannot ignore the other side of it also. Preparation, the logistical uh, contribution that goes with it. And my book fulfills that gap. Who is Ursula Bowers? Why is she noteworthy? It was very, uh, this uh, very interesting figure. Uh, suppose uh, it said that she was an anthropology student and uh, she had visited the uh, Naga Hills in 1937. Um, and um, she was actually, uh, that was when she had a first glimpse of the uh, Naga tribesmen, uh, that is of the remote areas who were still wearing, you know, she was shocked to see that they were still wearing G-strings and peculiar beads hanging around them. She was so fascinated that she actually came back after the war. And uh, she stayed in the Naga Hills during this time. She developed a wonderful rapport with the Naga people. And she also uh, organized this, what we call, uh, what was called the Watch and Watt, which was an offshoot of the V-Force. Now the V-Force was, you know, those intelligence gathering, uh, uh, it was an intelligence gathering unit. So, and these, uh, this Watch and Watt recruited from the local Nagas. They, they contributed a lot in terms of get, not only gathering intelligence, but also helping wounded soldiers in the dense Burmese jungles um, and, uh, you know, helping them and um, and seeing to so much of the supplies and activities that they made. And um, after the war, of course, she, she left, when she left India, she went back. But um, as I've mentioned in the book, my book, and uh, when she died, uh, two of the Nagas actually flew all the way to Scotland to be a pallbearers at the funeral. That that much of a connection she had developed with the Nagas. In fact, she was even uh, projected in the cover page of Times Magazine as you know she looked like an actress and she was with the you know the with the the naked Nagas as the headlines went. But she had a very close connection with them and she contributed a lot to the war. Who was Sepoy Wellington Massar? Why is he significant? Yeah, he's, he was from this Assam regiment too. And he's significant because of the bravery he showed during the Koima battle, battlefield. Because when the Assam regiment boys, including Mar, they came back it, I mean, they had to retreat from Jessami and Karasam. Then they were immediately sent to the battlefield in Kohima because reinforcement had not arrived. And here again, they showed the Assam regiment boys showed exemplary courage. And in particular, in particular, the name you just mentioned, and he actually died. So uh, that is why posthumously he was given a very distinguished award. He's from, he was from. Shillong, actually, Meghalaya. And most of these, and we have to understand that most of these boys in the Assam regiment, at least Mar, the one I interviewed, he was just barely 18 when he joined. Can you tell us about Howard Momin? Why is he noteworthy? Yeah, Howard Momin, um, he is greatly respected as the, um, you know, uh, for contribution to modern Garo literature. Garos are one of the tribes of Meghalaya. But uh, it's, it's, it's very strange that people don't know his contribution during the war. Uh, during the refugee movement, when they were in transit camps in Manipur, 
So there were there were a lot of people who voluntarily went to help these uh, refugees, in spite of the fact that diseases were rampant and uh, many people also did try to avoid them. But Howard uh, Moman, uh, he he was a he came from a distinguished family and he was a lecturer in uh, Cotton College in Mahati, uh, in the Department of England. He actually left his job, went there to serve the people. And uh, in the process, he contacted a terrible disease. And he came when he came back, no, no matter how much his family tried to help him, they could not. So when he died at the age of barely 31. So that also shows the other side of the war, like war always brings out either the best or the worst of human beings. You know, it, it brings out the beast in us or it brings out uh, the best in us. So he's one of the few examples of war bringing out the best. What new insights does your book reveal regarding the activities of Subhas Sandra Bose during World War II? Well, um, the attention I've given to Bose and the INA is very limited in my book. And also my uh, discussion on Bose is uh, mostly based on, you know, secondary sources. So that way, I don't think uh, my book reveals any new insight. However, uh, like, you know, I'm, I'm very glad you raised this query because when I was going through the activities of Subhash Chandra Bose, uh, there were very, many uncomfortable questions that came to my mind, which I could not directly pinpoint in the book for many reasons. What I have done nevertheless in the brief pages that I have mentioned was is to highlight these issues and I hope I have managed to convey this message. So now firstly, why this hesitancy to you know openly uh, pinpoint these questions? The thing is that in India, the activities of the INA and Subhash Chandra Bose is seen from a very patriotic angle, which is, of course, justified. After all, when soldiers of the INA, they came to India, it was for the liberation of India from foreign rule. Moreover, whatever Bose did, his you know, daring escape from the country and uh, uh, going to Germany and going later on to Japan, it the sole motive of his aim was liberation of India. And also one cannot overlook the enigmatic and uh, bold personality of Bose. Now, but then the uncomfortable queries that comes to my mind is that um, firstly his association with the Axis powers. So, of course, our narratives, our historical narratives, it uh, supports this claim by saying that after all, uh, he went to simply to secure uh, freedom of India from the British. Yes, that's true. But I feel that uh, as a leader, we have to, uh, no doubt, in a global war, you know, you cannot remute, remain a mute spectator and you have to join the sides. But we also have to think of the post-war order. What would be the situation? So joining the Axis powers, that was a little bit, you know, there's so many ifs and buts you have to think about. Like, say, leave aside Hitler, but uh, take the instance of Japan. Because what Japan did in Southeast Asia after it ran, the, the stories of what it did to the Asian people themselves is actually is, is, is not very comforting. It is very, very brutal to, in, in many instances. And also when the 
INA soldiers, um, when they came to India, when the so-called liberation of India, only as per statistics, 12,000 men were allowed to allowed to enter. The Japanese did not allow that. So there's so many questions uh, that remains and which I found very, very uncomfortable going through that. And uh, also another thing, yes, very important aspect. Um, you know, um, the soldiers who formed the INA, were the Indian National Army, were all those soldiers who were captured during the fall of Singapore and Malaysia. And uh, they were given the option by the Japanese, either you join the INA or, you, uh, or if you don't join, then you were sent to concentration camps along with the other British soldiers and so on. Now, after, out of the 40, 45,000, um, there were 5,000 who did not join. And in Malaysia, uh, the 10,000 were not even given an option. So what happened to these soldiers? We don't talk about it and we should talk about it. So because... Uh, what happened to them when kept in Japanese confinement was as was brutal, such as the story of uh, you know uh, John Craster, one one of these who eventually survived the three and a half years of torture in the Japanese camp. So we should look at it this way too. Can you comment on U.S. policy toward India during World War Two? The the United States policy. Uh, you know, there, there is a typical narrative in this. And uh, the U.S. policy towards India became more vocalized after Pearl Harbor incident, you know, and Japanese forces uh, and the advance of Japanese forces in Southeast Asia and Burma. And uh, this was a concern for Roosevelt, the president of the United States, because their purpose, actually, the policy in India was purely from the view of their policy was to keep... China supplied, because after Southeast Asia and after the loss of uh, Northern Burma, then they, they completely lost their uh, lost their only source of, uh, uh, source for supplying to maintaining the supplies to China. Uh, the U.S. was also frightened that what if uh, Jap uh, China would eventually uh, succumb to, to to Japanese pressure. And uh, because the United States was already fighting the Pacific War with Japan, the Pacific War. So if uh, if, if they lose China's hold, this would have been very difficult for them. And so they needed a safe passage. So the safe passage was from Northeast India, where initially in the Himalayan mountains called, you know, the Humber, very, very dangerous area. But also later on through Joseph Stilwell, uh, the Lido Road was uh, built, connecting Upper um, Assam, that is Arunachal Pradesh, right, which meandered through Burma, and then going to uh, the Yunnan province of China. So that was uh, that was the issue, and but otherwise, uh, it is said that American policy towards Indians during this time was very very mixed. However, the official policy was that before the Quit India movement. Um, the United States and China constantly did try to influence uh, Winston Churchill in granting uh, independence to the to the to the to the Indians. But then, after the after the Quit India movement, where where um, the Indians were attacking the 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 basis of uh, 
British infrastructure that was being built. And then moreover, after the entry of uh, Subhash Chandra Bose, aligning himself with the Japanese and also going to Germany prior to that, that created a lot of confusion in the American mind. So there were, of course, a lot of, even unofficially, there were a lot of supporters, but there were a lot who also were confused by the uh, changing positions of India. But they were, basically, the policy was to maintain China through, through India. The final paragraph of your book states as follows on pages 194 and 195. The Second yeah. World War was indeed an important catalyst for change in Assam when Arnold Whitaker described the region as the dragons of war, it was definitely a progressive leap from the Cinderella status of the past. In many ways, the war defined and shaped the contours of modern-day Assam. In fact, it would not be wrong to state here that the beginning of the contemporary history of Assam may be traced to the epical years of the war. What could not be achieved or seen throughout colonial rule abruptly experienced during the brief but cacophonous years from 1939 to 1945. It is really surprising that an event of such consequence to the northeastern region has not received much interest in the historical writings of Assam. This book has offered a broad but detailed account of the impact of the Second World War in Assam. However, there are many questions that remain unanswered and many areas that require a detailed and penetrating study still. Why did you choose to end the book with these specific words? What are some of the unanswered questions that you would encourage readers and listeners to consider examining in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, maybe I should have included those examples while I was writing my conclusion. But by then, you know, it was I was uh, on a you know that time limit, and I had to submit my book. Uh, yeah, it's actually when I started working on this book, I realized that there are so many areas that still have not been explored. But uh, and it's humanly impossible for me to you know include all these areas. Like uh, for example, I'll just cite a few examples. Like for instance, the tea garden laborers who were sent to work on the construction sites, and in particular the Stillwell Road, the road connecting uh, India to China. Um, nobody actually knows what I've, I've given the detail about what was their plight during the war. 80,000 of them were taken. They were living in barbaric, inhuman condition, but uh, nobody knows their stories. Then again, there are the cases of so many tribal women who joined the services as nurses. So what was their story? We don't know any. We don't know anything about it. Then even the, the, the so-called positive impact, uh, the war actually was a defining moment for Sam. And truly what could not be changed all these years was changed during the war because um, suddenly you have a region that is totally unknown, is is now falls in the global map, a region which suffered from a capital deficit, you know, 
was a capital deficit province. Suddenly, sees money pouring in. Um, you did not have indigenous entrepreneurs in Assam prior to the war. And now, because of the opportunities, the contracts that were floated, you find this whole group of you know, self-made, uh, these entrepreneurs coming out, but we don't know actually much about it. So, and also the total impact of the war, which uh, one has to see the post-war years. So there's, these are the so many issues and also the stories of the boys, recruits of the Assam Regiment. Uh, there's so much more to explore the stories. So there's so much of the social impact of the war, which is still uh, unraveled as yet. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you kindly tell us about where your attention has gone since completing this book? What are you working on now as your subsequent project? Uh, yes, um, what I will be working um, is uh, the post-war Assam, post-independence Assam, actually. Uh, I will take the brief period, um, say, 1950 to three decades, 1950 to 1980, because actually this was a part of my PhD work. And uh, there I found how significant actually the war was. In fact, you see the impact in the post-independence period. So, and also I, this is a very important area because um, in the existing narratives, this period 1950 to 1980 is seen as a period of stagnation. So according to my research, I find that it was not a period of stagnation, it was a period of transition. So uh, I'll be looking at it. Uh, I'm just waiting for the proper time because um, I'm also working. So, you know, unlike the universities where you can go in a sabbatical and just do your work. So it becomes quite difficult. So I'm, I'm waiting for the right moment. And uh, I have all the data, but then my PhD work that was written a long time back. And, uh, you know, you need to update your work and uh, also your perspective changes with time. So I need to do some more research and then th 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 then I can get to the writing of it. Thank you so much for the privilege of your time, your wisdom, your knowledge, and your erudition. I was absolutely blessed to sit with you and spend time with you during the time we have spent together. And I can hardly thank you enough for all the effort and silent sacrifice that is involved in academic research and that you went through to bring this book into reality and into fruition for the benefit of all your readers and all your students. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, thank you. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am signing off as your host, Ari Barbalat. I have been in dialogue today with Dr. Seema Segal. She is Associate Professor at the Northeast Regional Institute of Education, in Megayala, India, we have been discussing her newly published book, The Second World War and Northeast India, Shadows of Yesteryear, published in New York by Routledge Publishers 2022. Thank you.